The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 280. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. You can support the Brian McClanahan show by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support, or you can go to mcclanahanacademy.com where it's always free to enroll. That's a great way to support the show. And also go to learn true, T R U E. LearnTrueHistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. Also a great way to support the show. Happy 2020, everybody. Glad to be back here. It's been a few weeks now since I've been on the program, and I'm very excited to be back. We've had a lot of stuff happen in the uh, couple of weeks that I took off. So welcome to 2020. I hope that uh, you all have a productive and happy new year and that the Brian McClanahan Show is going to be part of that. Well, let's talk about the biggest issue, and I, and I wanted to start off, kick off the new year with the biggest issue that happened over the time that I was taking a little break, and that, of course, is the bombing of Iraq, which I know that the attack was on an Iranian general, but um, let's talk about this Middle East situation. I mean, look, impeachment was so last year. I mean, this was this is gone now, as you've seen now, the the uh, foreign policy initiative by the Trump administration to go after Iran, to go after Iranian leaders and uh, what they consider to be disruptive forces in the Middle East, has now put impeachment completely off the headlines. It's taken it out of the news cycle. We're now just talking about foreign policy. And uh, this is a big deal. And I've talked about foreign policy quite a bit on this podcast um, I've talked about how important it is for the direction of American domestic policy. And of course, we've got now potentially another great big war that's going to take place in the Middle East and the United States as part of that. So I think a lot of people are confused about why the United States is there. I mean, it's very easy to say, well, this has been a conflict for thousands of years. What are we doing there? What do we do in the Middle East? I think it's clear that this is a continuation of British foreign policy, not American foreign policy, but British foreign policy. And so we have to understand how we got here. And of course, I firmly agree with the proponents of a withdrawal from the Middle East. Um, We should not be in the Middle East, particularly since we're not the British. But of course, we have to understand how we got there and how the West even became involved and what Iraq means for all this. And Iraq is an interesting and unique situation. And I think also exemplifies why nation building by the Western powers is such a bad idea. And this is a post-World War I creation. In fact, I mean, again, it's the gift that keeps on giving from World War I. Now, I talked about how World War II screwed up America, and a lot of people responded and said, well, what about World War I? You can't just say it's World War II. I was talking about American domestic policy with World War II because American domestic policy was not affected by World War I long term. Well, it was long term, but not in the short term, right? The 1920s were different. So here we are 100 years after that, 
after that 1920s period where America was certainly looking inward <clears throat> rather than outward, at least to an extent. I mean, I think that it's a it's a um, it's a myth that the United States was disengaged from the world in the 1920s and 30s. I mean, they certainly were doing things that um, were uh, were more inward looking. Their policy was more inward looking, but they were also still involved in the world, just not the way they would be post World War II. But World War I, in terms of Europe, in terms of the Middle East, in Asia, I mean, World War I was a much more dramatic event for the future of uh, world foreign policy than anything. And the Middle East is certainly part of that. So let's talk about that today. And, and uh, if you, again, maybe you know some of these things, but if you don't know much about Middle Eastern history, I mean, this is... This is really important stuff and why the United States is engaged there, why the West is even engaged in the Middle East and what this means for America today. And again, why the United States should be out of this. And also, this is going to be a think locally, act locally episode. And I'll get into to that why, uh, to that to that reason here as we talk about Iraq. So when you go back and you look at the Middle East, we got to start with, of course, Greece. And I say that because... Uh, when you look at where the Middle East is today, and then you look at where it was in World War I, you know, right around World War I, you had the Ottoman Empire. And the, the sultan of the Ottoman Empire was a man named Hamid. And Hamid was uh, a fairly weak sultan. And you had four distinct regions in the Ottoman Empire that were really important for the future of the world. One was Turkey. The other was Egypt. The other was Syria, and the last was Iran. Now, nowhere did I mention Iraq, because Iraq wasn't even a place. Okay, So you have this Ottoman Empire, which is really a hollow shell. Now, this had been the case since the Persian Empire. So we have to back all the way up to the creation of the Persian Empire, and then the Persian Empire's interaction with Greece beginning in the 5th century B.C. We go back to the Persian Wars, which took place in the 490s B.C., uh, and then the in the 480s B.C. Um, and we have the defeat of the Persian Empire by the Greeks, famously by the Spartans and losing at Thermopylae, but then you have the battles of Salamis and Plataea, and of course the, the Persians are eventually pushed back. And what the Greeks had figured out in that time, and then moving forward a little bit, is that, again, the Persian Empire was held together by tribute and fear, not by really any strength. I mean, when you look at how the Greeks waged war against the Persians in the 5th century, the reason they won, the reason the Greeks were able to defeat the Persians is because the Persians did not have a strong devotion to this empire. They... They were being paid. They were slaves, or they were being paid as mercenaries, whatever the case may be. It wasn't a devotion to a place, as you would say with Athens or Sparta. They weren't defending hearth and home, in other words. What they're doing is trying to resist. The Greeks are trying to resist these foreign invaders, and the Persians were trying to acquire more territory uh, at the behest of a monarch. And that monarch was holding all of this together, again, through tribute, and slavery, essentially. So the Greeks defeat the Persians at these very famous battles that really support the architecture of Western civilization. 
And what happens is rather interesting. Now, the Persian Empire stretched into Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. But when the Persian Empire loses the Persian Wars, the Greeks push in to at least a section of, of Asia Minor, particularly along the coast. And the Greeks had been there before. I mean, you go back to the Trojan War. I mean, the Trojans were cousins of the Greeks. And the historians now firmly believe these were the Hittites, an Indo-European people, um, who were occupying parts of Asia Minor. But regardless, the Greek influence in, uh, in Asia Minor was tremendous. I mean, one of the reasons why the Persians attacked Athens, or at least landed at Marathon in 490 BC, is because the Athenians had been supporting Greek revolt in Asia Minor. So there was this mixing in Asia Minor in Turkey already between the East and the West. And that's very important for Turkey, because Turkey really is the hybrid state in the Middle East today. I mean, Turkey's kind of Western, it's kind of Middle Eastern, um, it's kind of secular, it's kind of not. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting place. So you've got Turkey really as the battleground, the front and center place, the, the, the epicenter, we might say, of this interaction between the West and the East uh, dealing with Persia moving forward. So... That brings us to the Peloponnesian Wars. Athens and, and, uh, and Sparta fight it out over control of Greece. And in the meantime, Persia is taking back slowly some of what they lost in the Persian Wars. And they're using their money to influence the outcome of this Peloponnesian War. And of course, their money helps Sparta ultimately defeat Athens in the second phase of the Peloponnesian War. But Sparta uh, can't maintain their control of Greece. They're not it's not designed to do it. I mean, Sparta was a militaristic agrarian society. It didn't have a navy. It, it didn't really have the ability to control all of Greece. And so Persia keeps, keeps pumping money into Greece to keep it unstable. This is often called the Age of Hegemonies. Um, and it's very unstable. You have Thrace coming and... Um, take control of Greece for a while. Athens makes a comeback. Sparta does for a while. But the real state that's looking and watching all of this, the kingdom, I should say, that's watching all of this is Macedonia. And while this is going on, while this instability is going on, you have what's called the March of the 10,000 Greeks. This is made famous by Xenophon in his story, The Anabasis. But you have these Greeks march into Persia because there's a civil war in Persia between some of the leaders. And that will then create a an opportunity for these Greek mercenaries after the after the Peloponnesian Wars to make some money. I mean, these guys were soldiers or warriors. They want to make some money, and so they do. But in the meantime, they're, of course, targeted for assassination. That fails, and these 10,000 Greeks march around Persia. And they're basically unmolested. And they figure out in this process that Persia, again, is a hollow shell. These people are not really dedicated to the Persian Empire. So as these Greeks eventually make it out to the Black Sea and then back to, to Greece, this becomes a household story about these 10,000 Greeks that were able to essentially march around Persia without any opposition. And so by the time Alexander the Great becomes the king of Macedon and launches his invasion to Persia in the 4th century BC, he's well aware that Persia can be easily defeated, and he does. He defeats Persia in the 4th century BC, 
quickly. I mean, within just a, less than a decade, Persia is gone. It's gone. He takes out not only Asia Minor, he takes out Egypt. Egypt becomes part of Alexander's empire, and he marches right into the heart of the Persian Empire and captures it. And, of course, the Persian king is eventually assassinated because his leader, his, his military leaders figure out this guy's a weakling. But even there, Alexander's able to conquer Persia, and he does so by essentially, ultimately, adopting Persian customs. But realizing that Western influence needs to move into this old Persian empire if they are to maintain it long term. So what you see, this is an important process now again. The influence of Western Europe, Greece, in places like Syria, in places like Iran, which is where Alexander brings, it's the heart of the Persian Empire, he brings a tremendous amount of Greek colonization into Iran, into Syria, into Egypt. Now, it doesn't make these places Western European, but they have access to Western European ideas. And of course, Alexander will die at a young age in the 4th century BC. And then you have the division of this empire by Greek leaders, Ptolemy in Egypt, Antigonus the One-Eyed in, in uh, Macedonia, the Seleucid Empire, and, and uh, what's the old Persian Empire. So the Greeks are still very much influencing this region of the world. Again, in the heart of different parts of the empire, namely the four major states, Turkey, Syria, Egypt, and Iran what we call those four major states today. So this Greek influence carries forward for several hundred years until you get to the Roman Empire. I mean, look, the Romans become important by about the 3rd century B.C. when they're fighting the Punic Wars and you've got the Carthaginians there in the north coast of Africa and they're trying to root out Carthaginians, attack Rome. This is Hannibal, almost brings Rome to its knees, but they'll ultimately win at the great Battle of Zama in the 3rd century B.C. And then, of course, the Romans begin their empire building, and they start moving east, and they figure out that one of the great problems has always been the Greeks. The Greeks had been part of these coalitions that have been fighting the Romans, so the Romans make it their business to go take out the Greeks by about the 2nd century BC and to colonize this part of the world. They go into the Middle East, and we all know about Julius Caesar in Egypt, and of course, ultimately, you get to turn of the century, turn of the of AD BC AD, and you've got um, uh, the uh, uh, Octavian or Augustus, who becomes the great emperor, who knocks out Mark Antony, who had controlled Egypt. Now, this is just before we get to the rise of Christianity, and I'll talk about that part of it in a minute here because then we have to look at the major monotheistic religions and that influences the Middle East. And I'm going to get to Iraq. I mean, this is all a long-winded way to get to where we're going to talk about. But before I do that, I'm going to take a very quick break. I'll see you all in just a couple of minutes. Let me talk to you for a minute about McClanahan Academy. I know at the beginning of this particular podcast or this video, I talked about McClanahan Academy. But let me go into a little more detail about why I think you should sign up for it and why and why I created it. First, a little bit about me. I have a PhD in American history from the University of South Carolina, and I've taught in the college environment for 20 years. And I've seen college students get worse over time, the curriculum get worse, 
And students are being indoctrinated more than educated now in our higher education system, whether it's high school or college. So I wanted a counterweight to that. And this is why I created the McClanahan Academy. Now, first, it's always free to enroll at McClanahan Academy. You sign up. It's free. And I give you a free course, 10 Myths of American History, when you do sign up. So it's a great way to get an introduction to what I do. But I've got eight courses for sale there and more forthcoming. All of these courses are designed to give you the non-PC version of American history, to take the red pill, so to speak. And I've got two courses in particular, my U.S. History Survey courses, which are designed for homeschoolers. So if you're a homeschooler and you want a good curriculum, and uh, my family has homeschooled all of our children from the beginning, and you want a solid history curriculum, that's why I designed the United States History 18, to 1865 and 1865 to present. You've got enough material, you've got lesson plans, you've got uh, tests, you've got reading material, you've got reading seminars, you've got 36 weeks, if you take them, buy them both, you've got 36 weeks of material, and it can be used as a high school history curriculum, or if you're just a lifelong learner, you can use it otherwise. But it's a great way to get a real history education devoid of Marxism and progressivism and political correctness. So sign up at mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. Again, always free to enroll, and I'll see you there. All right, we're back talking about Iraq, talking about the Middle East and getting up to where we're going to talk about Iraq. And we finished up with the, and this is a very brief history of all of this stuff. I mean, so um, if you've never heard it before, maybe you haven't. Maybe you don't know much about the history of the Middle East or how we got here. I'm trying to give a little bit of uh, primer on that. We're going to get into Iraq and where Iraq fits into all this stuff. So we left off talking about the Roman Empire and creating its client states in the Middle East. And, of course, this gets into the rise of the monotheistic religions, the three major monotheistic religions of the West, and that would be, of course, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Islam doesn't come around until about the 7th century A.D., so we've got several hundred years of Judaism by the time Christianity rises in the Middle East. And then, of course, we have several hundred years of Christianity by the time Islam rises in the Middle East. And the influence and interaction between these three monotheistic religions is going to play a role in the development of the Middle East in the modern era. Now, Islam rose very quickly in the Middle East because it was different than Christianity for the people that lived there. I mean, Christianity... There are a lot of Christians still in the Middle East. Of course, a lot of Jews in places even like Baghdad. I mean, there are still a lot of Jews all over the Middle East, and part of that was because of the diaspora of uh, Jews moving out of areas where they were being persecuted into the Middle East over time. Um, some of them ended up in, I mean, when you get to the 19th century AD, that's when you start seeing real movement into what's now Israel and the, and the call for a Zionist state by uh, Theodore Herzl, which um, uh, was a European intellectual who said that we need the Zionist state in, in the Middle East. But before that, of course, you have the interaction of these major monotheistic religions. And Islam rises very quickly because it was easy to adopt. It was appealing. It was, you, didn't re, you didn't have to lay up taxes or tithing. I mean, there really wasn't much to it. And um, it became very popular in places like, of course, modern Saudi Arabia, which is where the center of it all was. And then it spreads very quickly throughout the Middle East. And by the Middle Ages, it has become the dominant religion in the Middle East. 
Now, of course, that brings us to the Crusades. And, of course, Western Europeans deciding they're going to go take back Jerusalem, at least in the First Crusade. After that, it was more about land and plunder. And um, the First Crusade was even resisted by Eastern European Christians. I mean, so you have the split in the Christian Church. You've got the old Byzantine Empire, uh, which controls Constantinople, the Roman Emperor Constantine, who creates moves the capital from Rome to Constantinople at one point, uh, which is now Istanbul, Turkey. And so you have this gateway to the West that's fought over for hundreds of years. Finally, it falls uh, in the late Middle Ages, and it becomes influenced by the Muslims, or it becomes controlled by the Muslims. But still, you have this lingering Western influence, even though the Crusades ultimately failed, the Crusades reinforce, in some cases, this lingering Western influence, which had been there since the Greeks in the major dominant states of the Middle East. And one of those, again, is Syria. Damascus was a very important uh, post for Western European knights in the Middle Ages. Uh, Syria was really this, this uh, gateway to other parts of the Middle East, and you had... Uh, uh, and, and a tremendous influence by Western Knights in Syria. And so Syria has a lot of Western influence culture. I mean, you look at Assad and you look at the ruling elite in Syria, a lot of people think that these people, I mean, when you concept, if you ask the average American, what does a Middle Easterner look like? Um, they're not going to think of Assad. Assad is European. Um, so they're going to think of a different racial or, or ethnic makeup of the Middle East. They're going to think of the more Semitic peoples rather than the European peoples, which had become very much a part of the Middle East. And you have a lot of Christians in places like Syria and all over the Middle East, in fact, in Egypt and other places. So the Christians were there, and of course, all of that interaction between Christians and Muslims and Jews, and how that's going to, how these states are going to keep all that together. But within the framework of all of that, we eventually get this Ottoman Empire, which is essentially the recreation of the old Persian Empire in both uh, territory and structure. The Ottoman Empire was a large, hollow empire held together by basically money and tribute with the four major states. And during the Crusades, you had what were called the Crusader states and the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem. You had this, these four states created out of that, and of course they eventually fall apart. But you have this Ottoman Empire, which was a major player in European politics all the way up to World War I, at least as a fringe, it was often called the sick man of Europe, and Turkey really was the center of that, the sick man of Europe. It was sort of European, sort of not. I mean, this gets back into that major European influence going all the way back to the Greeks. So, World War I happens. The Ottoman Empire sides with the central powers, meaning Austria, Germany. And it loses. Now, it doesn't mean it loses everything. Of course... Um, the uh, the very famous Battle of Gallipoli and um, how the Ottomans were able to essentially you know, beat down the British in Turkey over and over again um, is one of the more famous you know parts of that theater of war. But ultimately, the Ottoman Empire loses, and at that point, it's broken apart. This is where you get into the modern Middle East. 
So religion is playing a role here. I mean, you've got this very dominant Islamic state, but it, within this you still have, as I said before, Christians and Jews. And you go back to Theodore Herzl and, and the call for a Jewish state, which eventually becomes Israel, and how important that is moving forward for European politics, because there were evangelical Christians in Great Britain and the United States that were certainly on board with creating a Jewish state in the Middle East. And that's going to play a role. But also this disintegration of the Ottoman Empire is very important how that structure sets up. One of the things that's going to happen is the British, this is French and British imperialism. The British, most importantly, believed the Middle East could not be governed effectively unless the British had a heavy hand in doing so. And this was their policy all over the world. You see, what the United States has adopted is a British imperial foreign policy. This is what we've adopted in the 20th century. So what we have now is this American foreign policy, which is actually British foreign policy, repackaged as American foreign policy. When the Ottoman Empire disintegrated, you had this western state of Turkey, and it goes through a lot of growing pains. It's, again, sort of Islamic, sort of not, sort of Western influence, sort of not, and they have a very Western-influenced government that's established in Turkey. And they develop a relationship with the Russians at this point, um, who are right on their back door, and, of course, the Russians are influencing the development of Turkey. And these are the Soviet Russians by this point. So then you start getting in this very complex situation with the Soviet Union and then ultimately the United States after World War II. And who's going to control the Middle East within Cold War politics? And we'll get into that here in a second, too. So you have Turkey developing very much independently. You've got Egypt, which is still basically a client state of the British, even though they're trying to, to give Egypt a little more independence. You've got Syria, which is controlled by the French. And you've got Iran, which is controlled by the British. Iran, uh, British want Iranian oil. This is where you get in the 1950s and the British throwing a fit when Mossadegh becomes prime minister of Iran and nationalizes all the oil fields. But where's Iraq in all of this? Well, this is a British idea to create Iraq. We're in Iraq today because the British decided in post-World War II Middle East, in 1920 essentially, to create Iraq. Iraq was governed as three distinct regions by the Ottoman Empire. You had Shia Muslims that were tied to Iran as part of Iraq. You've got Baghdad, which essentially are Sunni Muslims, and some Jews and some Christians. It's more secular, it's trade. They're kind of tied into Saudi Arabia, at least sort of. And then you've got the Kurds in the north, which are tied into Turkey. So you've got these three distinct cultural regions, cultural, religious, economic in many ways, regions. And the British and their grand, wise idea say, you know what we need to do? We're going to create a state here called Iraq, and we're going to govern it out of Baghdad, and we're going to make the Sunni Muslims ascendant, and we're going to subjugate both the Shia and the Kurds under this Sunni-controlled nation-state. 
because Baghdad is the economic center, Baghdad is the political center, it becomes the heart of everything, we're going to centralize power in Baghdad and we're going to support the Sunni Muslims over the Shias, over the Kurds. The Shias are numerous in Iraq. They're not the dominant Islamic fashion. If you don't know anything about there's there's Shia Muslims and Sunni Muslims, and this is over who should control, who has the reins of power in Islam. Um, and so the Sunnis are basically Saudi Arabia. The Shias are Iran. And so we're going to govern it as one central centralized nation state. This is the European way. This is where I said this is a think locally, act locally episode. Joe Biden, Joe Biden of all people, back in uh, the early 2000s, said that what we should do, and I can't remember the date, and I meant to pull that article, and I'd have to do some research to find it again. But Joe Biden suggested that the United States should govern Iraq not as one nation state, but as three nation states. They should divide it up. And he received so much flack from this from the Bush administration. How can you say that? This is Iraq. We're going to make sure we're going to support this Sunni-dominated government in Baghdad. And we're going to make sure, just like the British did, we're going to make them ascendant. And we're going to make sure that Iraq is controlled by a centralized power. And the Kurds have to become Iraqi. And the Shias have to become Iraqi. And this is how it's going to be. The problem with that is that it doesn't work because these other groups never viewed themselves as Iraqis. They viewed themselves as Shias or the Kurds or Sunnis. Now, the Sunni Muslims, like Saddam Hussein, uh, which, I mean, that was a secular state, I mean, that development is supported by the British. The structure of that is all British. And when the British are eventually forced out post-World War II, the United States fills the vacuum because the United States is interested in the Cold War. And, of course, Saddam Hussein becomes our ally in this Cold War because Iran cozies up to the Soviet Union. Why does Iran cozy up to the Soviet Union? Well, because the United States eventually booted out the prime minister. And this is 1970s Iran. Because for many years, for about 20 years, Iran certainly was a client state of the United States. When the Shah was in power, which the United States put the Shah in power, I mean, this is what happens. So the reason that a Shia Muslim from Iran was in Iraq at the request of the, Ira- of the Iraqi government, which is the ultimate interesting thing about this, the Iraqi government had invited him there. Why? Because there are strong Shias in Iraq. He was there as a guest of the Iraqi government. The reason he was there is because you have a lot of Shias in Iraq. And the people that were celebrating the death of this Iranian general were the Sunni Muslims and the Kurds who he was attacking. Right? So you've still got this very complex three-section Iraq fighting it out because it shouldn't be put together. But of course, this is the way after World War I. You've got Czechoslovakia created. You've got Yugoslavia created. You have these nation states of Turkey and Syria, Egypt, Iran, Iraq. You've got all this developed. You have ultimately after World War II, you have the creation of Israel. You've got Palestine involved in all that. All of this stuff essentially is the result of European nation state building following World War I and then also in some cases World War II. And the United States gets involved in all this because the British pull out. So we go in. 
This is why it's all a mess. One of the greatest things that's happened because of this attack on Iran, essentially, in Iraq, is that the Iraqi government is saying, we want the United States out. Good. We shouldn't be there in the first place. This is a mess. Iraq would be better off governed as three distinct regions. And probably what would happen is the Turks would ultimately take over the Kurds. The Iranians would take part of Iraq. And maybe Saudi Arabia would take part of Iraq or something. I mean, there would be some type of you know dividing up here. Um, and you would have Iraq cease to exist. That would be beneficial for the for the United States to get out of this area. And um, you know, we created the mess there. The British created the mess there. This this idea of nation state building post World War One and World War Two created the mess there. And it's why we should be talking about decentralization, uh, getting away from this nation state, this European nation state model, and talking about culture and how this really does matter. The borders that have been created, all this stuff that's been created, is arbitrary. It's artificial. And it's a byproduct of World War I. That is the lesson to be learned from this process. It affects the United... I mean, look, the United States, a lot of the United States is arbitrary. Uh, Culturally, the United States is, is regional. And we all recognize that, but we have this rah-rah American nationalism, or you know, and that's that's problematic, which I've talked about extensively on this podcast. It affects everything. It affects the Middle East. It affects the United States. It affects other parts of the world. Culture matters. Maybe one day, what we'll think about, and the people say, "What's the post? What what does the future look like?" I mean, if anything. If we wanted to really get to a point where we're, where we're accepting real diversity, then it would be cultural states rather than arbitrary political states. United by certain principles, whether it's religion, whether it's uh, you know belief systems, uh, whatever it is, economic systems, but there would be cultural states that were created, and these states would, would, would uh, be more responsive to the culture, reflective, reflective of the culture of the area, and I believe ultimately much more peaceful, but you have to have an acceptance of diversity. And one thing you can say about these Middle Eastern areas, you do have tremendous diversity in these areas. And some of these states were able to hold that together and not you didn't have tax uh, Muslims being attacked by uh, anyone, except other Muslims, Christians being attacked or Jews being attacked by Muslims or vice versa. So you didn't have a lot of that when you, in some of these states, of course. Um, ultimately, uh, this aspect of religion is going to be important. Um, but more than anything, it's the creation of these arbitrary nation states that I think affects the Middle East to this day. So that's my brief history lesson of the Middle East and Iraq and why we're there and understanding why we're there and understanding why we need to get the heck out of there um, and understanding that Iraq is not really even a nation state. I mean, it's a creation of the British and it should be viewed as such and immediately divided up. I mean, Joe Biden, for all people, was actually right back in the early 21st century that the best thing we could do in Iraq is divide it up. And the Bush administration, the progressives there, the Wilsonians in the Bush administration went nuts. We can't do that. We've got to support the government in Baghdad, which is the old British imperial model. Imperialism is the gift. British imperialism, I should say, is the gift that keeps on giving in the world today. All right. 
Hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's great to be back. I will see you tomorrow.